So I was driving down Crenshaw. I ended up at a trap house. People were twerking. I was not happy. It was not a deep house party. It was nothing deep about it. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Staten, Zach Taylor, and Jeremy Paxton. Welcome to the third episode of The Weekly Brew, your source for political, social, and sports commentary brewed up in 30 minutes or less. I'm Austin Staten, and I'm joined again by my co-hosts, Zach Taylor and Jeremy Paxton. Guys, I'm thrilled about tonight's episode. We have several amazing guests that have agreed to join. And I guess before we get, before we get started, how has the week been? You know, the week has been good. It's, it's flown by. I can't believe that we're already uh, another week into this podcast. Um, I feel like we just recorded a day ago or two days ago, and, and here we are a week later. <laughs> it's been a great run. Jeremy, what about you? I'm still recovering from the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> rough weekend? Uh, friend's wedding, rough weekend. Well, I guess for myself, I actually got to see a no-hitter on Friday night as Mike Fires threw nine no-hit innings against the Los Angeles Dodgers, striking out 10. It was the first time that I had seen it in history uh, in person, and it was it was quite a feat. Great atmosphere at Minute Maid Park here in Houston. That's awesome. I can't believe that you got to go see a no-hitter. All right, folks, now it's time to sit back, grab a drink, listen, and be informed. Let's start with the big lead. The big lead. If you have a 401k or invest in the stock market, you likely began the week in frustration as immense volatility rocked Wall Street Monday morning. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, open trading down more than 1,000 points, saw a brief midday rally before closing the day down 588 points. Now here are the key facts. Today's fall was the 8th largest one-day drop, and it was on the heels of Friday's 10th largest drop of 530 points. Zach, Jeremy, what does this all mean? Not good news for either our economy or the global economy in general. A lot of this is still stemmed in the economic turmoil that is going on in China. And I believe I read something today talking about how the the devaluation in China and um, a lot of their issues are kind of projected to go on for at least another year. And so I can see a lot of these things continuing, um, continuing on. In the last two days um, with what's gone on in the stock market, $1.8 trillion of U.S. household income has just disappeared. That's a startling number. In fact, you had mentioned, uh, you know, the, the last two days have been quite volatile. To put that into perspective, the last two days we've lost more than 1,000 points over the course of that time period. A lot of it has been fueled by worries about China's economy and the prospect of the Federal Reserve interest rate hikes. Jeremy, what do you see as the, the root cause behind this? Well, I think this started out with China devaluing its currency. And I know that that shook up investors a little bit. Uh, China has been slowing down in terms of their economic growth here over the past uh, few years. Um, and I, I know that foreign investors have been pulling money out slowly and uh, have sort of accelerated here now that um, what they're calling the Great Fall of China has happened. So um, I, 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 I can't tell you I can't tell you if there's one root cause. It's really a combination of different things that um, that kind of coalesced into uh, today's uh, stock crash. You know, another thing that kind of comes to mind is actually what's going on in Europe as well with Greece and um, subsequently Italy, Spain, and France as well, uh, you know, with so many of the major world economies um, dipping back into you know, recessions and, and fluctuation. It's, it's just not, it's not a pretty picture for the financial future. Speaking of recessions, a lot of 
financial analysts have suggested that the market is somewhat correcting itself. In fact, the numbers kind of point to that. Right now, NASDAQ is on pace for its worst month since November 2008, and the Dow and S&P are on track for the worst month since February 2009. Are we seeing a market correction, or what exactly is going on here? I think there could be a little bit of market correction going on here, but I think there's a whole lot more to it. I think we're headed for another crash. I mean, I'm no Warren Buffett um, or anything like that, but I, I just I, I see so many signs in everything that I read of this pointing to this is so much more than market correction that this is going to end up tanking. I think I read something where they expect how one of the more likely worst case scenarios in this whole thing is the Dow dipping back down to 5,000 points at some point. That's that's quite a frightening perspective to imagine the Dow falling that far. Jeremy, you had mentioned just a little bit earlier about China specifically and how that was integrated to you know kind of the global markets. Monday morning, Apple CEO Tim Cook sent a letter to CNBC, kind of stating that this is not necessarily just about China. In fact, he say he stated after his after Apple stock fell 12% Monday morning that business was going great in China. Demand was there, that his financials were in shape, and it actually caused Apple stock to kind of rebound a little bit. How big of a concern is China's economy right now to the U.S. economy? Oh, I'd say it's a major concern. I mean, they hold a lot of our debt. Uh, They're one of our biggest trading partners. Uh, Inevitably, what happens in China will affect the U.S. and the rest of the world. If you'll recall, however, our Treasury Secretary, Jack Liu, back on July 10th, had this to say about the Chinese economy and its relation to the U.S. But I will say that China's markets are still pretty much separated from world markets. Um, They're obviously moving towards being more integrated, but right now they're not. So you're not going to, I don't think, uh, see the, the, the direct linkage there. I think the concern that is a real one is what does it mean about long-term growth in China? Honestly, that is a little bit shocking to me. We look directly at a few industries that are directly correlated with China. I mean, one, we live in a globalized society. If one thing happens on one side of the earth, it's going to have a significant impact on the other side of the the world. We look at crude oil, for example, both WTI and Brent close at pretty low numbers today. Uh, WTI closed at 38.72, while Brent crude fell to 43.12. Both of these are low numbers, and it's a result of China's demand just not being there. Zach, do you buy into Jack Liu's statement? No, I don't. Not at all. I, I think it's just a reflection of just the incompetent leadership that we have in Washington to begin with. How, how someone that high up, one of our country's chief financial leaders, could be so oblivious to what even most laymen um, would know about China's potential effect on the economy. I think the you mentioned oil, Austin. I think one of the first ones that would come to my mind um, is retail, how everything seems to be said, uh, said to be made in China. To deny how that anything of what could go on there uh, could not have at least some sort of an impact on us, uh, it's it just seems it's it's mind boggling to me. I just I have no words for how one of our chief financial leaders could could not be aware of of this. And it's an interesting point that you bring up. Uh, Five thirty eight, which is a, a you know a Nate Silver production that is currently uh, affiliated with ESPN.com, suggested that investors should not overreact. That if anything, one, they should put more money back into the market because ultimately it's going to bounce back. And two, that in times like this, it's not smart to actually pull out and take your funds. In fact, they they ran a study with the S&P 500 saying that if you invested $1,000 back in 1980, if you just let it ride, that $1,000 would have matured to about 18 grand. Whereas if you took a more prudent and cautious approach, 
and pulled out whenever it was the, the market had dipped 5% and reinvested when it got back to 3%, that you'd only have $13,000. So I'm asking you both this. If you're invested in the market, what do you do right now? That is such a tough question. Um, I actually spent some of this afternoon talking about that with some of my coworkers. My gut reaction is to ride it out. It, I think a lot of that is going to factor into a person's own income situation, uh, as well as the age and how close they are to retirement. I think for guys like us and people like us who are a little bit younger um, and don't have quite as much invested into our 401ks or in the stock market at this point as what someone in their 40s or 50s or 60s is right now, I think we are uh, a little bit more um, situated to be able to ride something like this out, uh, whereas someone someone else might not be able to. So I think it's very dependent on on the situation. But I think the best thing to do right now is is to go ahead and just ride it out. Jeremy, what about you? I generally agree with that statement. I mean, I, I think we are in a position, being younger, to uh, kind of sit this one out. We don't need to take any immediate action. If I was older and I, uh, you know, had more assets to to play around with, I, I definitely would be a little bit concerned, especially with the figure that was given earlier about how much money was lost today. Um, but yeah, we're, we're 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 sort of not in that position yet in life where we have to uh, sort of take evasive action with. Um, huge dips in the market like this. So um, I, I'm, I'm content just to write it out. I think one of the things that kind of came to my mind was uh, reevaluating uh, my portfolio and where I'm a little bit more on the medium to high risk side of things. Um, since I'm younger, I felt like it, you know, it might be go ahead and worth, worth the risk um, there, but perhaps reevaluating that and shifting that down into sort of a medium low risk uh, sort of portfolio, at least for the time being. But as far as completely withdrawing from the market, I just don't know if I'm quite there yet. I think it's kind of interesting. We posted this topic on Facebook and some of our listeners actually said, quote, nowhere to hide but the treasuries, but these dips tend to smooth out over time. Slow and steady wins the race. Another said time to invest. My bond index is happy today. So we've, we've seen a lot of people that are taking more of the, the cautious approach in terms of knowing that it's a long term race, that it's not a short term and that you have to be smart about this and not just jump, you know, when things get a little bit frightening, I guess, in the market. The Rundown. On Friday, Captain Kristen Greese and First Lieutenant Shea Haver became the first women to earn the coveted black and yellow tab when they graduated from the U.S. Army Ranger School alongside 94 male soldiers. Joining us now on the Weekly Brew to discuss this are Terry Poulton and Carmen Pino. Terry, Carmen, thanks for taking the time out of your schedule to join us. Before we get started, can you both give the listeners a brief introduction on who you are and what you do? My name's Carmen Pino. I live in Houston, Texas. And I work for an oil company right now, but before that, I was an Army Ranger. Hi, my name is uh, Terry Poulton. I work in a corporate social responsibility now, but um, that was I began that work after a 20-year career in the Air Force as a pilot. Very good. And I guess before you know, we get into things, um, both of you graduated from service academies. What was the process like for you both in terms of choosing your career paths and what you wanted to do after graduation? At the Air Force Academy, at the time that I graduated, if you were medically qualified to become a pilot, then you were guaranteed uh, to go to pilot training. And so there was other options for folks who either just did not want to go to pilot training or were not medically qualified, and that was based on either their grade point average or their uh, military performance average, which is graded on the same 4.0 scale of grades but, but referred to your um, success as a leader, um, all kinds of different sort of military um, assessments that were done throughout the four years. Carmen, what about you? I was a bit unique at the time. I was a military intelligence officer, and I was commissioned in May of 88. 
and went from graduation to a wedding and went from a wedding right to ranger school. So I, my wife and I took separate honeymoons. How we, how we got to that point was there were very few slots available to the Army for intel officers at the time. And ranger school was very important to me. Even though I was going into intel, I wanted to test myself mentally, physically, and I wanted to get that tab. So I was able to get a slot from the Department of Army after a rigorous competition process at West Point and took that slot into Ranger School. What was it like um, you know, being a female in service academy, and do you feel like uh, you were treated any differently while you were there in comparison to your male peers? I think it was not without challenges. Um, it definitely, you're in an environment where uh, I was keenly aware that there were folks who maybe weren't um, big supporters. Of, of women being at the academy, but also it was not a new thing. Women had, the class of 1980 actually was the first class of women, and obviously the challenges that they faced and sort of the detractors uh, were far more prevalent than when I went through. But I think I think what I would say for both the academy and also for pilot training, when you're, in, you're a rather uh, a minority and kind of a male-dominated field, I just was, I was constantly aware that eyes were on me and on, on all the other females in in either of those categories. Um, you know that you kind of stood out. You know that um, I think I felt like my mistakes would be amplified. So I just I really tried to hold myself. Um, not that that's a, you know not to make that an excuse, just to recognize that that's the situation that I was in, and and to try to hold myself um, to a level that would um, could stand that extra scrutiny, if you will. Now, Carmen, kind of bouncing to you. Uh, you know, right after you graduated from West Point, uh, you enrolled in, you know, Ranger School. What was that process like to you, uh, you know, just going through the training and, you know, the rigorous affairs that Ranger School has to provide? You kind of consider the biggest, most difficult times in my life physically and mentally. You would certainly take the first couple weeks and year of West Point, Beast Barracks, and as a plebe at West Point, um, you would take going to combat and Gulf War, the first Gulf War in 1990. And Ranger School trumps both of them by far. It was the most grueling physically and what people really don't talk about mentally challenging time of my life. Um, I learned how to lead. I learned how to follow. And I did in an environment where effectively I didn't sleep or eat for nine weeks. And that's part of the process. You push your body to the most extreme level and you see how it performs. Terry, thinking about women in the military today, um, what does it mean to you to see uh, these two women graduate from uh, Ranger School? I'll tell you what, I was following the news about these women, um, you know, as it started to look like, well, once they got to Florida, you know, my Army um, colleagues, my, my friends that used to serve in the Army, that's when they said, hey, things are looking really good for these girls. And I was, I, I wish I could have watched it on, you know, ESPN, <laughs> because I was really cheering for them. I, I think it would be really difficult overstate how big of a deal this is, how important of an achievement this is, and um, and I think we're already seeing the next order effects of their uh, of their achievements. It's uh, I think it's a tremendous day for uh, the Army. It's a tremendous day for the military and really just for the United States. I think I think it's momentous. Along the same lines as Terry said, this is a great thing for the Army. It's a great thing. They're both West Point graduates. It's a great thing for West Point. And most importantly, it's a great thing for both of them. I mean, Lieutenant Haver, Captain Greased, um, the class of 11 and 12 from West Point, maybe the other way around, 12 and 11 from West Point. These two officers, these two soldiers went through 
first off, a process that had to include hundreds of women who wanted to go, down to, I think, 19 that were actually slotted that went. They are the two that graduated, and one is following on and you know, may or may not graduate. She still has some of the course to follow. But these two are the first ever. And, and what that means from a military perspective is it's not t- times may change, it's times have changed. And I think that's really positive, and I think these two can be trendsetters. And as they've come through the process, now there's a tremendous burden on them which they're going to have to take very seriously because everybody will look at them differently now. As a male second lieutenant showing up in 1989 at my first unit with a ranger tab, I was looked at differently because no MI officers had ranger tabs at the time. Um, And when I say no, that's figuratively because there were other MI officers. They just weren't around. These are the only two women in the Army with the ranger tab in the military. And that's going to be a huge burden, and it's also going to be a great opportunity for him. Do you see any validity to um, some of the comments that have been made about uh, standards being lowered? I- I'm not aware that that actually occurred, um, but uh, you know, there there been there's there been some chatter about the military lowering standards for women, and especially in combat roles. Do you have any comments about that? I'm not really close enough to know whether they have or haven't. I suspect they haven't. And, and more than anything, I listened to the other soldiers that went through Ranger School with him. And, and I remember the one, um, I assume a lieutenant or a captain, because it said they went to school with one of them, saying, you know, they helped carry him through. Now, all Rangers do that. You don't get through the course on your own. The the physical aspect, after a couple of weeks at Ranger School, everybody's physically destroyed. It's that point for, forward, a mental game and a mental process to follow. And the fact that the other graduates are speaking positively is what really tells me that they didn't lower the standards. That's just an excellent point that you bring up. In other words, you know, why do we have these standards and are they are they necessary for the task at hand? It takes, um, you know, one pound to pull a trigger. Okay, so we, we know there's some absolutes. And in the world that I come from, where when I was in pilot training, women were still not allowed in combat aircraft. And it was really interesting to hear some of the, some of the um, discussion about how women weren't you know, as physically able as men to fly these cockpits. But the truth is, uh, even the C-17 that I flew is fly-by-wire. Uh, it doesn't take much strength. <laughs> There's other things that that, um, that you do need to measure. I mean, there, height might be an absolute requirement that you have to meet. Um, but other things like dexterity and responsiveness, um, quick um, quick uh, reactions, um, you, 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 you can imagine. There's a lot of other things that go into... Um, your ability to successfully fly than, um, than just strength. So what would you say are the next steps going on from here? Well, um, this is a step. So the next step is opening up all combat roles to women. Now, apparently, and I'm not as up to date on it, but the way I understand it is the services have to have a plan done by the end of the year for a 2016 implementation. Um, and I may want to fact check that, but I think that's the way it's set up. And you know what? That's the real final step. That's the full integration of women into all roles. And uh, these two will be on the front end of that. I believe one of them right now is a military police officer and the other is an aviator. Um, Those roles are combat roles, whether, you know, today and who knows how they could evolve going forward and to be more frontline oriented for all women in all roles in the military. And I think that's the next step that we have to get through. I think what you see is the other services starting to fall in line. Certainly the Navy has followed on and said that women can be accepted into SEAL training if they meet the standard. Um, I think the Air Force is, you know, has, has had women in most 
in most of our combat roles for a little while, but there are still some that are that are eliminated. I think the I think the Marine Corps and the Air Force have to come to the table with the Army and the Navy at the Joint Chiefs level and come up with a plan. Um, you know, basically, I think it's I think we're past the time that we need to talk about why women should not be in combat, and we just need to look forward and, and look at the absolute. Um, that, that, that this is going to happen, that women are going to be in combat roles. Now, how do we do it in the safest, most effective, and most transparent way? Very good point. And, and, and Terry, is, is there anything that you'd like to, you know, kind of add just in, you know, what this means for the military in general or what it means for you personally as, you know, a, a retired Air Force pilot that's, you know, been through the academy, been through those rigors, you know, has kind of, uh, you know, had those trials that you've had to overcome. Is there anything personally that it means for you? I'm, I'm thrilled. Like I said, I, I feel like I was a personal cheerleader for these women, um, for these officers. Um, this is a momentous occasion. This is this is a source of tremendous pride. Um, it's proof that it's proof of what I feel like I've always been saying that if even one person can make it, if even one person, if one female can be qualified, then you should not have a prohibition against the whole gender. And so I think that they have really busted through one of the most extreme glass feelings, if you will, and they've done it with such strength and such grace. Um, they make me very, very, very proud. Terry, Carmen, it's been great to have you both on tonight. Uh, this is a great subject matter, and it's great to see that the, the Army is taking the first steps uh, with this regard to, you know, equality within the military. And, you know, thank you both for joining us tonight. And Carmen, I know you actually have to catch a flight to head to Europe right now. So safe travels for you. Um, you know, Terry, thanks for dialing in from Seattle tonight. Uh, it means a lot to have you both on tonight's program. It's been a pleasure. Have a great night. Great. Thank you, Austin. Rangers lead the way. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. The decline in high school football participation has continued, dipping for the sixth time in seven seasons. According to the recently released data from the National Federation of State High School Associations, 37 of 51 states, breaking Washington, D.C. into its own territory, has seen a decline in participation. Although growth is seen within southeastern states and Texas, the total number of high school athletes participating in high school football since 2008 has fallen nearly 30,000. Now joining us on the Weekly Brew to discuss, this is Ryan Tatum, wide receiver coach at Foster High School here in Texas. Ryan, thanks for joining us tonight. Hey, man. Glad to be here. Thank you all for having me on here. Before we dive into this, can you just tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself, kind of what you do at Foster High School? Yeah, I teach uh, AP U.S. History, and I coach our wide receivers, and I kind of call offense for our JV team and everything like that. Concussions, pay-for-play, sports specialization, you know, student-athletes choosing, you know, basketball or choosing baseball rather than trying to play multiple sports sometimes maybe that has impacted you know kind of the numbers in football what do you see as being the factor there we've been going two a day since august 10th right you know if you didn't do spring ball so if you're you know a 4a or, or lower and you don't have the opportunity to do spring ball you've been out in the august heat since august 3rd when you compare that with a AU basketball, I mean, which would you rather do? You want to spend, like, you know, your afternoon in, you know, 90, 100-degree weather? Do you want to be in a gym at 72 degrees, man? I want my kids to play multiple sports. If they can help, you know, that sport and help them do well, because not only are they competing during football season and competing during the fall, but they're also competing in the winter and they're competing in the spring. And, you know, so they're getting that competition and year-round and that, you know, speaks a lot for experience and stuff like that and it'll it'll only help them 
you know, be a better all-around athlete. There was a study I saw recently where I was a little surprised. Um, it turns out high school football or football in general is actually not the number one sport for concussions uh, among kids. It's actually girls' soccer. You know, a lot of that has to do uh, with, you know, new equipment that's coming out, uh, better equipment that is coming out uh, and everything. Because, you know, if you played high school football, you know, even 10 years ago, uh, you know, you probably got a concussion and you just didn't know it. You know, the coach just said, hey, you got your bell rung or something like that. And nowadays, you know, right. it's a pretty serious thing. Uh, but, yeah, it's crazy. Girls soccer, man, they're number one. I could almost see it as being um, just soccer in general uh, and, and not necessarily just specific to girls. I know in, in the case of this study it is, but uh, just with the, the impact of the ball hitting the head um, oh, yeah. and everything. And I think it's almost a little um, ironic that most people would immediately assume that the decline in football has to do both, you know, with health-related issues, specifically concussions, and with the growth of popularity um, in soccer over the last few years, that's it's the first sport I would have assumed um, that a lot of these mm-hmm. kids would be going to, or at least the parents would be pushing their kids towards, viewing it mm-hmm. as being a safer sport um, away from vision. And, in fact, we have this, this data here showing that there's actually more concussions in soccer than there is in football. They, you don't really see the contact and stuff that there is in soccer. I mean, it is a contact sport and everything, but, I mean, in football, you're, like, collisioning every play. And so I think that's what gets drawn into a lot. And just all the injuries uh, with everything that, you know, because, I mean, it's really easy to get hurt playing football if you don't know what you're doing. And sort of playing playing off of that, can you tell us how the techniques have changed? Uh, I've I've read here that how kids tackle or or how people tackle in football in general is sort of changing. Uh, It's something about um, heads-up tackling, is that what it's called? Well, there's, there's a couple of initiatives that are out there. They've come and recruited, like my head coach, uh, Sean McDowell, he is heads up certified. He's like a trainer. So he can go out into the community and teach head coaches of youth leagues how USA football tackles. And those head coaches can become a heads up certified coach. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the commercial on television and stuff during NFL games when they're talking about, you know, youth football. And so that's what, that's the initiative that USA football is doing. And they go through drills where, you know, you basically kind of come to balance, you see what you hit and you take on most of the hit with your shoulder pad and, and kind of the way you tackle uh, is a little different. We've seen how seven on seven football has been instrumental in developing you know, not only high school quarterbacks, but kind of setting the standard for college quarterbacks as well as, uh, you know, the NFL. I think it was last year at one point there were eight quarterbacks from the state of Texas starting in the NFL, all of which had played seven-on-seven football. Seven-on-seven is such a different game than actual football. It's really really a whole different mindset and and a different game and stuff like that, but I really think it is a good thing. We like our kids playing seven-on-seven during the summer because, once again, you know, they're competing – and it's and you know we want to run our system. So when we go out and do seven on seven, our quarterback is getting timing with his receivers, and they're running our stuff, and they're getting used to doing our routes and how we want them to do it. You know we can't coach them or anything, but you know they kind of they kind of know what to do uh, and all that kind of stuff. So it, I think it works out well, and it's a really good tool. And I think it's a big deal uh, for especially college quarterbacks because so much college is in the spread system. It'll trickle up to the NFL. Every, everything in football, it's kind of weird, actually trickles up from high school, then it goes to college, and then you kind of start to see it in the NFL. You know, in other instances, it's kind of top-down. 
Very interesting discussion tonight. Uh, Coach Ryan Tatum, again, from wide receiver coach at Foster High School here in Texas. Coach Tatum, I uh, really appreciate you taking the time out tonight to discuss this and join us on the Weekly Brew for this you know, topic about high school football and kind of the direction it's taking here in the U.S. And again, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Hey, thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, anything I can do to help you guys out, uh, just give me a call anytime, man. I'd, be, I'd love to contribute anytime. We appreciate it, Coach. Thanks again. Closing time. Guys, we had a great show tonight. We had great discussion on a few key topics, talking about the U.S. economy, what it means for the long term. We also had great interview tonight with Carmen Pino and Terry Poulton talking about the military and kind of how it's shaped and progressed over the last few years, specifically regarding the uh, Captain Kirsten Greist and First Lieutenant Shea Haver becoming the first woman to join the U.S. Army Ranger School and you know finish with the graduation. Also, we talked with Ryan Tatum tonight about concussions in high school sports and kind of high school football in general and what that means. Guys, did you have fun tonight? Had a great time. Had a blast. Best episode so far. I tend to agree. Now, thanks again to you, all of our guests for joining us tonight on the Weekly Brew. And again, if you would like to submit any feedback or questions, you can find us online at facebook.com slash weekly brewcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash weekly brewcast. And again, for our guests tonight, we want to thank everyone again for joining us. And for my co-host, Zach Taylor and Jeremy Paxson, I'm Austin Staden, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew.